Well, good morning. You can have a seat. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith. Uh, I work at our Anderson campus. Uh, when Matt abandoned our college ministry at our Anderson campus, I was left to pick up the pieces. Uh, and so I've been there for the past few years, uh, just trying to keep the ship afloat. And uh, man, it's, it's such an honor and a privilege for me to get to jump around a little bit over the summer. Most of the students have abandoned me. It's just a, it's a theme in my life, apparently. Uh, and so as I've been left by the students that are normally I'm ministering to, I get to kind of move around. And so I'm excited to come out here to Creekside to be with you. Uh, it is such an honor and a privilege for me uh, just to have some new faces, interact with some people uh, that maybe we've crossed paths at some point because I worked at Southwood and Youth for a while. And Anderson, anyway, I've been all over the place and I'm glad to be here right now. And I'm excited to continue in our Psalms series. Uh, if you've been with us this summer, you know that we've been walking through a variety of Psalms and we've been getting a variety of topics. We've, we've been hearing from a variety of speakers. We've been seeing a variety of perspectives. But one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is that they are connected by a thread. There is an overall theme or, or meaning that connects every single psalm together, and it's that they are all part of a book of praise, right? It's the fact that every single psalm, no matter who wrote it or when they wrote it or what circumstances led to the writing, what we see in the psalms is this overarching idea that God is good. You see, the psalms are this poetic response to the revelation of our God and the reality of our world. Because when those things collide, I mean, there's tension, there's frustration. God is good, and yet there's evil in this world. God says that he's the good healer, and yet people we know get sick. God's people have always felt a tension between joy and, and, and sorrow, between heaven and earth, between what God has said to be true, and yet what we experience in this world. And when we look in the book of Psalms, what we see is a variety of authors approaching a variety of situations, looking at a variety of tensions, and every single time they provide this incredible picture of how to embrace that tension and respond to it with praise. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So this morning in particular, as we look at Psalm 105, what we'll see is the author approaching attention. He's approaching the tension of identity. And as he approaches it, he's, he's going to unfold, kind of unpack King David as he's writing the psalm. He's going to unpack who it is God says that we are and, and what it is God says that we need and, and how it is God says we should live. And we're going to see those things unfold. And what's beautiful throughout the entire thing is that ultimately David comes to this point where he says, and ultimately God is good and he is worthy of our praise, even when it's really hard to understand who we are. At St. Francis High School in La Cañada, California, there's something to be said about math teacher Jim O'Connor. Substitute back for why. The question is, what is that something? Or round it. When you think of him, does the word love come to mind? Obviously not. He's very, uh... For whatever reason, none of these kids would tell me what they really think of him. Oh, what's the word? Yeah, none of the boys have come in here and said, oh, God, we have hated him, you know, at times. Nobody said that. I wonder why. He's going to be seeing this, right? Oh, yeah, oh, that's why. <laughs> Truth is, Mr. O'Connor can be a bit of a drudge. You don't know what you're doing. But the 70-year-old Vietnam vet says he's not here to entertain his students. It drives me crazy when people say school should be fun. I mean, it's nice if it could be, but you can't make school fun. E to the KT times E to the C. And for years. Okay. 
The kids thought that's all there was to him. Until last November, when senior Pat McGoldrick learned they didn't know the half of him. Pat was in charge of a student blood drive and had just come here to Children's Hospital Los Angeles for a meeting. He says it was weird. Whenever he told someone he went to St. Francis High School, they all said, Oh, you must know Jim O'Connor. Isn't he wonderful? Wonderful? What? Like, it's disbelief, really. It's almost like kind of finding this alter ego that he has. Inside the blood donor center, Pat found a plaque listing all the top blood donors at the hospital, including the record holder, Jim O'Connor. Then he learned something even more unbelievable, that whenever Mr. O'Connor isn't torturing kids with calculus, he's on a whole nother tangent, cuddling sick babies. Come on, you can talk to me. Three days a week for the past 20 years, Jim has volunteered here, stepping in when parents can't to hold, feed, and comfort their children. So low. Nurse Erin Schmidt says he's invaluable. They tend to calm for him. They tend to relax with him. They fall asleep with him. I just like them and relate to them somehow. Is that a smile? Jim's never been married. He has no kids of his own. But he has fallen hard for these babies. I don't want to see him alone. You can't do that. You're not a tough guy at all. I know, but don't t- don't tell my students. <laughs> and the truth is that sometimes it's really hard for people to understand who we are, right? Other people will struggle to understand us, even after knowing us maybe for years. They will struggle to understand who we truly are. And the reality is that we even struggle to understand ourselves. Right? The reality is that our, our own identities are, are confusing and, and mixed up. Am I a husband or, or a father or am I a son or a, a brother or am I a boss or an employee or am I a, a, a teacher or am I a liar or am I a minister of the gospel or am I a hypocrite? I don't know. At some point, I kind of fall into all of those roles. I, I fall into all those characteristics and all those attributes. And so somewhere in the midst of it is me, but who am I really? Right? How, how do I determine who I am, what my true identity is? How, how can I claim to be a Christian? Right? I've put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Right? So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, and yet how can I trust Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin and yet fail to trust him with, with the, the security of my family or, or my future plans? Or with the anxieties that I might have about tomorrow? How can I live this sort of double life? The truth is that we struggle to understand who we are. We struggle with attention. So what do we do with it? Well, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, Psalm 105 runs straight at this tension. And as we see King David approach the nation of Israel with this message of who they are, of what they need, of how they should live, we'll see him bring this tension back to truth. He's going to repeatedly remind his people, hey, this is what God has said. This is what God has done. And this is how we should live in response. 
So Psalm 105 opens up, and basically the, the context behind it is uh, the nation of Israel is just having a party. I mean, they are celebrating. Uh, they have recently achieved some really cool victories. David is this brand new king, and everyone's really pumped about it. And he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbolic throne of God. He's bringing it out of, you know, it had been held by these enemies of theirs. He's bringing it to their capital. He's bringing it to Jerusalem, to this place of honor. And so the nation of Israel, I mean, they are pumped. They're excited. They're, everyone's kind of gathering together. And when you say, and I say Israel, you say all, oh, right? Like they're just like going for it. And they're pumped. They're excited to be Israelites. And, and as David looks at this captive audience, as he looks at this gathered people who are so excited to be who they are, he's going to just take advantage of the moment. He's writing this psalm and he's delivering this basically state of the union to his nation. And he's going to say, hey, hey, I know that we're excited right now. I, I know that we're kind of running a lot of different directions and we're all pumped up and you're eating churros and I don't, you're getting excited. But here's the thing. It says, I know that it's easy for you to forget these moments. I know it's easy for you to forget the truths that seem so obvious right now. I know that you're going to get a week down the road, a month down the road, a year down the road, and you're going to forget what's true. So he says, listen to me. He says, listen to me, O children of Abraham, God's servant, you descendants of Jacob. He says, you are God's chosen ones, and he is the Lord our God. He carries out judgment throughout the earth. He always remembers his covenantal decree, the promise that he made to a thousand generations, the promise he made to Abraham, the promise he made by oath to Isaac. He gave it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as a lasting promise. David's looking at this captive, excited audience, and he says, remember who you are. You're God's chosen ones. It says, you are the inheritors of this promise that was given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the, to the nation of Israel. He says, this is a, a promise that you are inheritors of. This is, this is an incredible gift that God has given you, this identity that he's bestowed upon you. He has claimed you as his own. He chose you. It says, remember that. When you start your day, start on that foundation, on that rock, on that, that solid ground that you are God's chosen one. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, what's incredible is that you are now a child of God. He's your father. He's adopted you out of sin and death, and he's adopted you into his family. You are a son or a daughter of the Lord Most High. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. How incredible is that? And yet so often, we will fall into the trap that David knew that Israel was headed towards. We will fall into this trap of trying to sort of determine for ourselves who we are on our own effort, by our, by our own ability. We will try to sort of self-determine our identities. And a lot of times it's based on what we're doing or maybe what we've already done. So many times as we are walking through life, we think, hey, my identity is found in my alignment. Meaning, where do I align myself? Meaning, maybe it's, maybe it's the hometown I come from. I'm from College Station, so I'm going to gig them, right? Or I'm Waco, so I'm going to sick them. Or I'm from Caldwell, the best one, which is sting them. Man, that's, that's maybe us. 
We're excited because we're saying, yeah, that's, that's where I align. That's where I'm from. I'm, I'm a part of this sports team, or I'm part of this political party, or I, I graduated from this school, and my identity is found in this alignment that I have in my life. Or maybe it's not the alignment that I have. Maybe it's the actions that I'm currently undertaking. Maybe it's the relationship that I'm currently pursuing. I'm known as the, the husband of so-and-so, or the son of so-and-so, or the wife of so-and-so, or I'm the boyfriend of so-and-so, or I'm, I'm trying to be the boyfriend of so other so-and-so, right? Like we have these identities that are, that are wrapped up in maybe something we're currently pursuing, whether it's a relationship, or maybe it's a degree, or maybe it's a career, or, or maybe it's, it's being a, a tough teacher who doesn't think school should be fun. We will base our identity in these actions that we take, or maybe it's in accomplishments that we've already done. Maybe it's that trophy on our mantle. Man, when we bowled that 150 or something. (laughs) Maybe it's that number on our pay stub that we worked for and we strive for and we sacrificed hours and time and energy and vacation. We, We worked so we could get that salary, that accomplishment, or this ring on one of my hands. Or maybe it's that being the, the, the name on the plaque or the name on the building that I donated this or I did that or I accomplished this or I accomplished that. So many times we will place our identities in these alignments or in these actions or in these accomplishments. And yet what's so troubling, what's so unfortunate is that these self-determined identities, they just create greater struggles. They'll just lead us to further tensions because ultimately these self-determined identities mean that they're always lacking. That high school ring is never as shiny when you get to college. I hate to break the hearts of some 17-year-olds, but it's true. Every year, working with college students, I will see on campus at A&M, some, some freshman will walk onto campus wearing their letter jacket. It's like, yeah, <laughs> people know. You've seen it, and your heart just, oh, Because you can watch them as they walk slowly around campus, just sort of over the course of the day, They'll realize like, oh, no, I'm not. No. Uh, no. Like they just realize like, oh, gosh, no, that's, that's, that's gone now. Like that, is, that has been done away with. That is something that doesn't hold up moving forward. People will realize. I work with students who eventually realize. They, they come back and talk to me years later. They say, man, wow, I, I had to realize that my boss, he doesn't respect me or promote me based on my GPA. Something that just kind of has to sink in over time to realize that, wow, these things that I worked for, these actions I took, these alignments that I made, these accomplishments that that I managed to accrue for myself, man, suddenly I realize they're not the end all be all. There's always a better team or there's always a better career. There's always a better salary. There's always a higher position. There's always a better something. And so if we're putting our identity in what we can do or what we've already done, Man, it's not going to carry us forward, not only because it just loses luster, but also because it's just going to end, right? Everything ends in this world, whether we want it to or not. Sometimes we want things to end, right? Sometimes we want to leave that hometown. We say, see you later, Nowhereville, a.k.a. Dallas, whatever, and we just move on with our lives. Or sometimes we want that relationship or we want to leave that job. We say, man, I I don't want to work there anymore. I want to go work at this or whatever. 
And we move away from these things. We're, we're glad to see them end. And yet then we find ourselves seeing relationships fall apart. And we say, well, but I didn't, I didn't want that to end. Or suddenly we have health struggles. And we say, well, I don't want this to end. Like I, I, I wanted to trust in, in who I am, in my health or in the health of my family or my parents or my siblings or whoever it might be. Suddenly we find ourselves walking into situations where things are ending and we don't want them to. And suddenly, if we are placing our identities in these things, in these alignments or these actions or these accomplishments, suddenly we find ourselves without an identity. Which is why David looks at the nation of Israel. Which is why the Lord is looking at us and saying, hey, here's who you are. You're God's chosen one. You see, as believers, our identity is not found in in what we choose to do or where we choose to go. Our identity is found in who chose us to be his people and who reached down and saved us, who loved us first. We don't find love in the fact that we love God first, but we find love in the fact that he loved us first, that he sent his son to die for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still dead in our trespasses, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die so that we might live. That's who we are. We are recipients of a gift of grace. We are the recipients of the most incredible gift that we could ever imagine. Eternal life. That's who we are. We are the chosen ones of God. And he's saying, don't forget that. Don't put your identity in anything else. Because it's just going to fail you. It's just going to fade away. But I am faithful and I'm eternal. This is an identity that you can trust in. It's an identity that gives you value always. You see, we are the recipients of a promise. God has promised us that we have a Father who loves us. That we have a Spirit who's been given to guide us. And we have a Savior who's coming back for us. That's who we are. And we might continue to question our alignments and question our, our actions and our accomplishments, but we will always be able to trust God's assurances. Always. So we need to ask ourselves, we need to be honest right now and ask, am I one of God's people? Have I put my faith, have I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord my Savior? Have I trusted in him as, as God? Do I believe that Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for me? Is this a faith that I own? Is this just something that I've, it's not just something that I've just heard. It's not something that maybe my parents believe that they kind of told me that I should believe. This is something that we need to own. So have you? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? for the forgiveness of your sins? And if so, do you trust that identity? Do you trust in God's promises? Because it's, it's hard. 
right? It's very difficult. David knew this. Even speaking to the nation of Israel, he, he knows it's, it's difficult to continue to trust in God's promises, especially when it comes to the promises that he's made regarding our protection or our provision. In other words, what we have and what we need, it's, it's hard to trust God in that. And so David takes this practical step and he, he grabs the nation of Israel and says, hey, as I'm talking to you, as I'm reminding of who you are, let me remind you also of what God has done. Let me remind you that our God is a faithful, trustworthy God. He says in verse 12, when your ancestors, when those ancient Israelites, when they were just few in number, just a very few. In fact, they had resident aliens within their, in their ranks, right? They had all these even non-Israelites just sort of hanging out with them. They were, they were a ragtag group of misfits, and they were wandering from nation to nation. They didn't have a place to call their own. They didn't have a, a home, a, a pillow to lay their head on. They were just wandering from one kingdom to another. As they were just this disenfranchised, uh, kind of low socioeconomic status, they, they were just kind of this, this tough spot crowd. God let no one oppress them. In fact, he disciplined kings for their sake, saying, don't touch my chosen ones. Don't harm my prophets. David says, when your ancestors were in this low spot, man, when they had no resources, uh, no, no reputation, when they were just sort of wandering around, God brought nations to their knees for their sake. God looked at kings and he disciplined them and he rebuked them and he told them, you don't touch my chosen ones. You don't harm my prophets. God protected his people because that's who he is. He's a protector. And yet so often we still worry as God's chosen people that we're not going to have the protection in our lives that we need. Hi, Margaret. Yep, a car says beep, 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 beep. No, no, Margaret. These are my stickers. Dan Dan's stickers. Margaret wants my stickers. No, Margaret, no. These are my stickers. They're not for you. No. Hey, hey, hey. What's going on? It's all right, baby Margaret. Tell Margaret she can't have my stickers. <sighs> Welcome to the high stakes drama life of Daniel Tiger. This is currently a large part of my life. I feel like I'm kind of, I'm living, I'm living in the hood right now in that Daniel Tiger neighborhood and I am loving it because there are moments that my daughter, my daughter just loves the show. She loves, we play with our Daniel Tiger and our Mark. We have the whole family in plastic form and man, we put them to good use and we will act out. In fact, this scene over and over and over again where Margaret wants something that Daniel has and Daniel's like, no, and then Margaret cries and then one of us is supposed to put Margaret down for a nap because that's just, the solution to everything, apparently, is just put the baby down. Uh, and we will walk through this scenario. And slowly but surely, you know, I, I began to realize, you know, there's kind of, there's a lot of universal truth to Daddy Tiger, you know. He's just, he's sort of a trustworthy fella. And he, in fact, lays out this wonderful principle of telling Daniel, hey, look, there, you can trust me. He says, hey, hey, I, I know what's going on and, and, and I'm going to protect you from, from what you need protecting from. But the trouble, the, the, the issue is that a lot of times for Daniel or, or maybe a lot of times for us is we want protection to look one way and yet it doesn't. 
Many times we find ourselves maybe struggling and fighting to, to, to hold on to what we think we need. Right? What we think we've earned, what we deserve. We say, man, I, I've kind of gathered this kingdom for myself and I have these resources and I have kind of this nest egg and I've got this family and I've got this lifestyle and I've kind of amassed all these things for myself. And, and if anyone tries to take this, if someone tries to kind of reach in and, and snag anything out, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on that, right? I'm going to fight against them. And we do that to other people. And unfortunately, we do this, I do this with the Lord. When suddenly I see something in my life that, that I think is threatened, something that I value, something that I cherish, the, the health of my kids or, or this plan that I've made or, or, or this money or this home that I've built, suddenly I see the Lord maybe allow something to kind of fall away to, to kind of get pulled out and, and suddenly I get upset. <laughs> I get frustrated. And I push back and I say, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I need that. And we find ourselves fearful, terrified that God's not going to protect us when he's told us he will. And it doesn't look the way we always want it to look. But I'll tell you, if we're just committing ourselves to fighting and scrounging and, and protecting and guarding what we think we need, man, it's, it's never going to pan out well. It's never going to be enough. Because we will fight and struggle to hold on to what we have. But what's even more tragic is that then we, we look out and we see, oh wait, there's, there's other things that I haven't gathered yet. And in fact, I want to fight and struggle for those things as well. It's not just that I distrust God's protection of who I am, of what I've got, but, but I'm doubting that he's going to provide what I need. I'm fearful that I'm going to miss out on the things that I don't have. And that's why David looks at the nation of Israel. He keeps going and he says, hey, look, when God was walking with your ancestors, he spread out a cloud for a cover. He provided a, light, a fire to light up the night. They asked for food and he sent quails. He satisfied them with food from the sky. David says, I mean, the Lord saw the needs of his people and he met them. He was sufficient. His promises were trustworthy. He brought light to the darkness. He brought food to empty stomachs. He opened up a rock and water flowed out. A river ran through dry regions where there was just desert. Suddenly God made water, life-giving water appear. Yes, he remembered the sacred promise he made to Abraham, his servant. Of course God remembered the promises that he made. Of course he fulfilled the promises that he had given to his people to not only protect them, but to provide for them. And yet so often we find ourselves as God's chosen people still worrying and struggling, uh, afraid that we're going to miss out on what we don't have. I have two kids. I have, my daughter, Charlotte, is two and a half. I have a son, Lawrence, that's five months old. And, and my daughter, Charlotte, has just gotten into dance class this summer. It's the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life, and I love it. But what's so tragic is that even in this moment, even as we're waiting to go into our dance class, and it's going to be so great, she's going to dance and put on wings and be a ballerina for 30 minutes. Even in this moment of what I would look at and say is lavish provision, right? She still finds herself desiring other things, desiring things that she sees just out of reach. And so often we've, we've kind of entered the season of life where Charlotte will see something in the world as we're walking through a store, we're walking through the dance studio, and she will point out something, she'll be like, oh, I need that. 
And that's how she communicates. She doesn't say, like, I want that. Or, like, that's nice. She says, I need that. And I'll say, Charlotte, that's, that's motor oil. Like, you, the, you have no use for that. That doesn't do nothing for you. But no, I need that. And, and if I push back or if my wife pushes back, if we tell her, like, hey, Charlotte, no, you, uh, listen, darling. Like, you don't actually need that. She will become upset. And, in fact, her favorite move right now is if I tell her, like, no, Charlotte, you don't need that. She will just turn around. And give me like a few beats. She's got wonderful dramatic timing because she'll just wait like a couple seconds and she'll turn back and she'll say, I need that. And then turn back around. <laughs> and she'll do that like four, five, a uh, hundred times. Like she will just do that over and over. I need that. And, and eventually I have to just tell her like, no, like, let, come on, let's go. And we just, we just have to leave because she is convinced in her mind. She says, no, I, I need these things that are out there. And you know, if she was like pointing at like, oxygen or like shelter. I'd be like, that is true. You do need those things. But instead she points at like toys and yeah, like gas canisters. I'm like, what? Who are you? Like what? You don't need these things that you think you need. And yet when I'm trying to explain this to her, lovingly, graciously explain this to her, she just won't have it. And when I see this occur, as I've seen it occur over and over and over again, I just slowly began to realize, oh, you sweet little mirror, you little sin mirror. Like I, I just, I see in your life, I see the depravity that I just kind of do a slightly better job of filtering. She doesn't have a filter. That's why she can just say those things with just reckless abandon. And yet I realize that in my mind, or in my heart, maybe not verbally all the time, but, but I will walk through life and I'll see that vacation that my friends went on or I'll see that lifestyle or I'll see that kind of family dynamic or I'll see that salary or I'll see that car or I'll see that whatever it might be. And in my heart and in my mind, I say, oh, I need that. I need that. And so many times the Lord looks at me and he says, hey, no, buddy, like, look, I'm going to give you what you need. And I'm telling you, like, you don't need that thing. That's, that's not in my plans. That's not, and, and I get upset and I get frustrated and I want to turn my back. And I'm saying, no, I need that. And I'm upset because God doesn't know what I need. Or so I think. Or so my emotions so often push me to believe. And it's in those moments that I just have to look at my heart and I have to tell my heart what's true. I have to look at Scripture. I have to look at the words of Jesus Christ himself who looked at his disciples and says, you don't need to worry about what you eat or what you wear or where you live. He says, because you have a Father in heaven who loves you who's going to provide for you. And again, it's not always exactly what we think it should look like, right? That's the struggle, is that so many times we, we, we see what God has given us. We see the provision in our lives. And we say it's not enough or it's not what I wanted or I had a different picture or I had a different expectation. But God says, I'm telling you, I promise you this is what you need. But you need to recognize that as I provide what you need, I also am going to promise. Jesus himself promised us that this world is going to bring persecution. Just as our God in heaven brings good, gracious provision, this world will bring death and destruction and persecution. And we should expect that. It's not easy, but it's the reality of where we live. It's the reality of our existence. 
which is interesting because so often we convince ourselves that everyone should just get what they deserve, right? We think, no, no, I, I, I've worked these ways or I've done these things. Or I've sacrificed this stuff and, and I've earned this or I earned that or I deserve this. And we just think if everyone could just get what they deserve, everything would be great. And yet when we look in Scripture, even though that's how we feel, when we look at the truth given to us in Scripture, we should know, we should recognize that Romans 1 tells us that the only thing that any of us deserve is death is eternal separation from the God who made us, the God who loves us, because we've sinned, because we've gone against his will. And thankfully, as believers, we don't live by merit. We don't live based on what we deserve. Thankfully, we live based on grace. First, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that you've been saved. Thankfully, we live based on what Jesus Christ earned, based on what Jesus Christ deserved. He lived the perfect life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved so that we can trust in him, so that we can look at his resurrection three days later and say, wow, I can believe in what he said. I can believe in what he did. I can believe in the promise that I can be united with him, not only in his death, not only in his struggle, not only in his suffering, but also in his resurrection. I can be united with him in eternal life. He's going to prepare a place for me in the presence of my God, my Father in heaven. If I simply believe in who he is and what he said and what he accomplished. And that's the promise. That's the provision that we've been given. But do we trust that? Do we trust God's protection? Do we trust God's provision? Because in order to move forward, man, we need that foundation. David's looking at the nation of Israel. He says, hey, I want want you to grasp these ideas. I want you to wrestle and hold fast to these truths. He says, because then you got to move, right? It's not just what you know. It's also how do we live now? He looks at the nation of Israel. He says, hey, you know, when God led his people out of bondage, they were rejoicing. Man, they rejoiced. They were excited. His chosen ones, they shouted with joy. He's saying, look, your ancestors were in the exact same spot that you're in now. Just as you're excited, just as you're pumped, just as you're gathered to see the Ark of the Covenant come to Jerusalem, he says, man, your ancestors were in this spot He says, and you know what? When God was doing this incredible work in their midst, when he was delivering them from enemies, when he handed the territory of nations over to them, and when they took possession of what other peoples had produced, when God had kind of brought this incredible plan to fruition, where the Israelites got to walk into this beautiful infrastructure that had been created by evil people, God had allowed evil people to accomplish his purposes. And in that moment, you know why he did that? It's so that his people, so that his chosen ones might keep his commands and obey his laws. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that God has given us a trajectory. God has given us a purpose. So often we will try to determine our own trajectory. We'll try to say, you know, I want to live for this or live for that. So many times we hear the the words of our culture to follow your heart. Let it guide you. Chase your bliss. Man, I'll tell you, our hearts, some of us know this very, very well. Some of us are maybe just now learning it, but our hearts are untrustworthy. 
They are constantly changing. They are consistently wrong. If you just look back and you look at your 8-year-old heart or your 18-year-old heart or your 28-year-old heart, you look back and if you're like me, you, you say, wow, past self, so sweet. It's so dumb. <laughs> so, so dumb. I was convinced at the age of 8. I was convinced that I would live with my parents forever. I just knew it to be true. And I would have arguments with my mom. And my mom would say, Jacob, you know, someday you will want to move out. I promise you. I said, like, no, mom, you're, you're talking crazy right now. And she said, no. Like, she said, what if, what if you get married? You, you know, you're going to get married. You have a wife. You want to live somewhere else. I said, like, no, mom, we'll just she'll move in. We'll live here. I have bunk beds. Like, what's, what's the problem? The food is good. The roof is secure. Like, I, we will live in this place, I didn't understand it, but I was, man, my heart was set. How many of us are still with that one person? How many of us over the age of 18 are still with our seventh grade crush? None of us. Love lost. I get, no, no, that's, why, why is that, why did that happen? Because Logic won. Maybe love did lose in some senses because eventually we realized, oh no, like my life, it's going in a different trajectory. I, you know, seventh grade crush, I just had to admit at some point in my life, I had to say, you know what? Britney Spears and I, we are taking different paths in life. I just had to come to that realization eventually after seventh grade. I said, we just, we're going different directions. We have to come to the realization that, you know what? My heart at any given moment is not necessarily the most trustworthy trajectory. And God looks at us. He says, yeah. So let me give you something you can trust. Let me give you a purpose that you can follow. Let me give you a trajectory that you can move towards. You're here to worship and serve me. God has given us an ultimate purpose. Now, we should make plans. We should endeavor to work in careers and, and, and raise families and do these other things. Those things are good. But God says, ultimately, in all these areas, in all these contexts, your ultimate purpose is to worship and serve your God, is to love God, is to love people, is to tell everyone about the good news of Jesus Christ, of how he secured a relationship with us and the Lord of the universe. That's why we're here. David looked at himself and he saw himself in a very secure identity. He says, you know, I'm a person that God chose. He knew that about himself. He says, I'm someone who God is going to protect. And David knew that even though he'd been chased and persecuted, there was a crazy king before him who tried to murder him over and over and over again. But David said, you know what? God's going to protect me the way that he sees fit. And he's going to provide for me what I need. Even when I'm hiding in caves, even when I'm discouraged, even when I'm out in the boonies, even when I've kind of run into all these roadblocks, I know that God's going to provide what I need. And I know that I'm someone who God has given a purpose to, to worship and serve him. So what do we believe? How do we see ourselves? Let's go to the Lord and ask him for clarity. Lord, we thank you that you have given us such beautiful instruction. Lord, that once again, you have, you've provided just wisdom and, and knowledge, but, but more than that, you've provided an example, a life to follow through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we just, we ask that we would be a people who trust what you say, who trust what you promise, 
if you would take a moment right now and just be honest with the Lord, confess to him, say, God, I'm struggling to trust you with this. God, I'm struggling to really believe what this guy says about Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm struggling to maybe uh, believe what he said about, about who you are or, you know, this Bible stuff. Or God, I'm, I'm struggling to, to really trust that, that you are going to give me what I need because, Lord, my life looks like it's going in a direction I don't want it to go. Or, Lord, there's kind of elements. There, there's enemies that are, that are coming up against me. And, Lord, I don't see you protecting me. Lord, I feel abandoned. Or, Lord, I feel neglected. Or, Lord, I, I feel like I've been oppressed right now. And, and maybe you are struggling to trust. Trust the Lord in a variety of areas and just be honest and tell him that. He knows how you feel. He knows where you're at. It's not going to be a surprise to him, but it's healthy. It's good for us to confess to God, Lord, this is how I feel. Lord, this is where my heart is. Because then we follow up and we ask the Lord, God, move my heart to a new place. Lord, tell me the truth that I need to believe. Confess, Lord, where you are, but then ask him, God, let your spirit empower me to have that conversation I need to have or, or put a person in my life that I can talk to about this. Or, Lord, Lord, give me the space to, to maybe just spend time in prayer or in reflection or in scripture where you can speak to me later this week. Just as David, just as so many of the psalmists would start out saying, God, I'm abandoned. Lord, I've been persecuted. Lord, I don't know where I'm at. Lord, I'm lost. Lord, I'm confused. So time and time again, those psalmists would then end their passage with saying, but praise the Lord because I know he's good. Praise the Lord because I know he's going to move. Praise the Lord because I know he's going to prevail. So ask the Lord that that would happen in your life right now. Say, God, this is where I am. But Lord, take me to where I need to be. Pray those things now.